I'll tell you what I'd like to get you to do, Pete. Would you do me something? Uh, so make it say something like, uh, uh, don't go away, uh, folks, or we'll be back with more of the, well, you know who show, all right? Don't go away, folks, we'll be right back with My name is Mark Lee. Over to my right, I've got a good old friend of mine, name of Andrew Dorsett. Hey there. Hi there. Uh, you've got yourself an optimist, Mike. That's right. Right? That's the, the brand. And then mine is realistic. So uh, I think we're going to try to stick to our roles here. I'll, I'll be the realist. You be the optimist. I have to be the optimist. Okay. And uh, we're going to... Enjoy some music and uh, maybe even talk about it a little bit. Oh, great. So, <clears throat> I'm just going to drop something in here. It's a, a little, it's a real piece of work. Let us know what you think. Now, wait a minute, DT. Let me tell you, Rogers back in town now. Do you feel all right? That was Zap and Roger, uh, a live concert for BET uh, from the early 90s. Now, uh, they started in 1980, and uh, Roger Troutman was very influential in just sort of putting the talk box out there. Used it on every song, pretty much. And then later... Wait, what's a talk box? A talk box is kind of like a, it's sort of a bit like a talking guitar actuator. Um, which is, if we rewind a little bit, we're, we're not here to talk about Zab and Roger, by the way. No, we're here to talk about flapjacks. How do you like your flapjacks? Plentiful. Good answer, good answer. Uh, we're also here to talk about a man named Pete Drake, oh. who uh, sort of pioneered the use of the talking guitar actuator. But before we do that, we got to rewind again, a little bit back to uh, the 1940s. And here's a man named Alvino Ray, who is a pedal steel guitar player. And a band leader. He had his own big band with their own TV show. And every once in a while, he would feature this creepy little plastic puppet named Stringy the Guitar. Let's listen to Stringy for a second. I am the spirit of the St. Louis blues. I am so blue. All the day long, I am blue. All the day long, I am no balloon. 
wow, that was pretty weird. But isn't it kind of neat how uh, the instrument, it sounded like it was talking, didn't it? I thought it was, was it not talking? You know, it it was and it, it was and it wasn't. Okay. So what was happening was, you can't see uh, because it's a podcast, but Alvino Ray would hold up a little sort of speaker device up to his throat with both hands, cup it against his throat, and then the speaker would play out the sound of whatever instrument he wanted to play out of it, provided that instrument was available in his orchestra. It was a big band, that's why they call it that. So he had everything he needed, presumably, within reason. He opens up his mouth and starts forming words, not making a sound. But this Sonovox technology that he had developed... By the way, did I say it's, it was called a Sonovox? Oh. That, that was his name for this speaker device. And it would just blast the sound out of his skull. And he would mic his open mouth and entertain hundreds of people. So you mean he's just like, he's forming the words with his mouth, but he's not singing, right? He's not actually singing. He's just allowing the, the what's it called? The Sonovox? The Sonovox, To yeah. sing for him. Exactly. While he ma- makes the shape of the words with his mouth. Gotcha. Yeah, you, you could call it lip syncing. Oh. Except he's not syncing his lips to anything else. So it's not, it's you, you shouldn't really call it that. No, definitely not. But, oh, hold on. We got to uh, we got to fast forward a little bit. My friend Mike left a bunch of his records uh with another friend of mine when he moved away. Left all his records. I'm flipping through them. And hello, what is this? You know what it is? What? It's the amazing and incredible Pete Drake and his stock stocking teal. <laughs> his stocking teal. <laughs> the name of the album is The Amazing and Incredible Pete Drake and His Talking Steel Guitar. And is he just like, wah, 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 wah. No, no. He says a lot of stuff He's through got, that guitar. Oh, uh, wow. Through that, through the TGA, uh, playing his pedal steel. And I, you know, I, sometimes I talk too much, but I think we should just hear some of these records. We should do it. I got them like right over there. Okay, run and get them. Okay, here we go.
My, that was nice. Forever. <laughs> I could listen to that all day. Let's play it one more time. <laughs> Maybe we'll play a different song. Uh, I think people might want to hear this uh, story, actually, that uh, that Joe Walsh tells uh, to this guy. Um, this is another podcast uh, hosted by a guy named Mark as well. He spells his name with a C, um, called WTF. It's a good podcast. Yeah, I, I heard it's really good. Um, he's got joe walsh on as a guest and joe tells his story about pete hi i'm joe walsh <laughs> the hell you are <laughs> let me drop it in you i'm not even gonna let you hear this story you have to look it up on your own okay okay <laughs> he must have been the first one to use that voice box thing yeah where'd you find that there was just I found the that in Nashville. There was a country singer named Dottie West. Yeah. And she was uh, one of the grand old girls of Nashville. And uh, her husband was Bill West. And he was a pedal steel player, but he was also a, a mad inventor. And he had invented... The talk box, which basically, it's not a speaker, it's the back end of a speaker. Right. In a little cardboard box and a piece of surgical tubing stuck in it. So the sound comes up the tube. Right. But you don't really hear it. And Pete Drake is a legendary pedal steel player. He used it once, but Pete Drake had a hit where his pedal steel talked but then that thing went back in bill west's garage and uh anytime the james gang played nashville we'd go to dotty's after the show and she'd invite a bunch of friends over and we'd all sit around and and play guitar and uh bill west went out came in from the garage and said here take this I made this a long time ago. Uh, here's how you do it. You know, maybe you can use it for something. I'm cleaning out my garage. <laughs> so apparently he, he gave another one to uh, to Peter Frampton. Joe and Peter Frampton, they, they both get these really unique special gifts. And what do they do with it? They take it into the mainstream. I'll be Joe Walsh and you be Peter Frampton. So okay, it's like at the same time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great songs. Uh, I don't know if they knew that they could actually like talk into it or say never figured the it words. Out. Um, or if they knew that they could just get a wah pedal for that and not have to put anything in their mouth. That's funny because there's a George Harrison song on that on that very record that Pete Drake played on. It's called Wah Wah. There sure is. You know? What? Frampton and Walsh were both there. Oh, they did know about the Wah Wah. 
<laughs> I guess those guys just like to complicate things. I think so. Um, so anyway, they get all the glory, though. They're like, hey, first guy to use a talk box. Uh, you know, some would say it was Frampton. Ain't so. Uh, but then you look, by, you look back just like three years. Here, let's do the rewind. Uh, so anyways, apparently that wasn't the only talking guitar actuator out there. We can just call it a talk box, I guess. It's not as fun though. It's I didn't we settle on TGA? TGA for right. short, yeah. Oh, my beard's picking up on the microphone. <laughs> for all you ASMR freaks out there. <laughs> Back to the music. <laughs> Pete had more of these devices just lined up in his cabinet. Uh, our, our friend Steve Henson told me. Yeah, yeah, Bill, Bill, uh, Joe got his from Bill West. Now, Peter Frampton got his from Pete. Okay. Yeah, all right. I thought it was the same box, but it was a couple of That's pretty, that's pretty neat. So, uh, I don't know, I guess. Yeah, I uh, should have got one of those, man. When I used to work yeah. at Pete's, there was a basement full of those things. <laughs> Are you serious? Sitting around on a shelf. Oh man, I don't think he was really using that. By the time I came here, I think that that had kind of played out. I I never saw him use it. Yeah, he. I I think uh, I read somewhere that he said uh, he he kind of got tired of it. By the time yeah, and, uh, and the, you know, rock and roll guys wanted it, and he was like, exactly, you take it. <laughs> exactly. They kind of they kind of commandeered it, you know, and and turned it into a thing. Bill Howard will know more about that for you, man. He. Bill Hullett played with Pete a bunch. I, I never did play with Pete. And now we're going to be switching gears. Here's some more of my conversation with Steve Henson, followed up by a few phone conversations I had with folks that were close to Pete, and an email from his widow, Rose. Here's Steve. A friend of mine was working for Pete Drake, and he called me, and he said, man, I got you a job with Skeeter Davis. I don't know if you know who that is or not. I but, sure uh, do. Yeah. Okay. Well, so uh, so I came up to play with Skeeter, and uh, it's a long story, and it's not very interesting, but that didn't work out, But I, so I okay. ended up staying anyway. And uh, that was in 1977, around the fall of 1977. So uh, my friend worked for Pete Drake, so I was able to, uh, that was a foot in the door for me to hang around down at Pete's place. Yeah, I guess that's what people did when they were. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you, especially you there. Town. They were, yeah, they were really good about uh, taking people in, you know, and if they saw, if Pete, saw potential in somebody or whatever you know he might say well find it find that boy something to do so we don't have to go back on you know what i'm saying uh-huh uh That's you know great. just kind of doing odd jobs and stuff you know just to keep body and soul together so so they did that for me they were really great about that man uh i had a lot of fun down there i really did it was uh pete's son johnny he kind of uh-huh. he worked there too you know and uh 
we would uh, set Pete's steel up at sessions, uh, you know, go get tape and stuff, go get Pete a hamburger. He loved Wendy's hamburgers. Oh, really? That's, yeah. That's oh, man, like we'd go through the, <laughs> we, we must have gone through the uh, drive-thru at Wendy's a hundred times to get Pete Drake a Wendy's hamburger. He absolutely loved them. Were there burger patties square back then? No, that's the crystal. Oh, Wendy's does it too. At oh, really? Around, around I never parts, noticed they that. Did. Oh, they did, but by the time yeah. I get one, I'm so hungry I don't look at them. I just eat. <laughs> <laughs> I never noticed what shape they were. That's interesting. Steve and I didn't just talk about burgers. He moved to Nashville in the late '70s after Pete Drake had pretty much retired his talk box and was focusing more on being a producer. Here he is talking about Pete's label, First Generation. He had a label called First Generation Records. And that's the one where he uh, got some of the old Opry stars uh, yeah. trying man, to reboot their a, careers, right? He was the best-hearted cat in the world, man. And uh, he, he did that for those people, you know, just so they'd have a home, you know, just so they, they could have somewhere to record. Because none of the major labels wanted him, wanted them, you know, anymore. So, uh, so Pete said, "Well, we'll just start a record label, and re- well, I'll just record them." You know, he's That's just a great. good guy, man. Good heart. He did that out of the goodness of his heart. Wow. Me and a friend of mine were. It was late at night, about about Crystal Hamburger time, and uh-huh. uh, we're we're sitting in the lobby at Pete's place, and this old man came in there. And he was just dressed like in work clothes, and it was Ernest Hub. He's he, you know, and he had that voice. You know, he's like his feet here, and uh, uh-huh. we're like, no, we ain't seen him, you know. And so he chats us up for a minute. And he said, he said, y'all are nice boys. He said, I wish you'd cut your hair though. You remind me of Waylon and Willie. <laughs> <laughs> he 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 was always trying to get Waylon and Willie to get haircuts, man. It, it was hilarious. He was a good man. <laughs> Ernest Tubb was a good-hearted person, too, man. Oh, yeah. I love Ernest Tubb. Man, he, uh, you know, a one in him. a million. Mm-hmm. A one in a million. You know, and Pete's brother played bass with Ernest for about 25 years. Yeah, is that was that uh, before Pete was... Uh, before he was working heavy or yeah yeah uh, i'm you know probably in the they probably started in the late 40s or the early 50s uh both of pete's older brothers uh jack and bill were texas troubadours they worked with ernest Tubb. wow i did not know that I, so he had an older brother yeah he had well there yeah the two Two older brothers, Jack and Bill, and they were both in the business. And, uh, you know, of course, that probably didn't hurt Pete any when he came to town. Sure, sure. Because, that, and, you know, that was a real high-profile band, too. Get out of you. You said he was kind of a sarcastic guy? He was, man. He'd bust you on stuff. You know, it was funny. He he called me. When I came to town, I weighed about 115 pounds. You know, I was just a skinny little kid. I ain't much wow. bigger than that now, but... Uh, he called me Macon Fats. <laughs> <laughs> he, <laughs> he knew I was from Macon because, you know, he was a Georgia cat, too. You know, he's from Atlanta. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah. he knew I was from Macon, and, and uh, so, yeah, he just said, well, there's Macon. Every time he'd see me, he goes, there's Macon Fats. <laughs> <laughs> he just, you know, he was one of those guys, if, if he liked you, if he really liked you, he'd mess with you, you know. He, yeah. You know, you know, just one of those good old southern, you know, sarcastic cats, really, man. You know, yeah, just, just, and people just loved him for it, you know. Busting your chops out of endearment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He really was nice to me. He was a, he helped so many people. It, it just, he was, man, he was just the best. He, he helped a lot of people. That was the ever-charming Steve Henson, who, by the way, is still working on Music Row. So if you happen to find yourself in Nashville, go ahead and look him up. I'm sure it's going to be a good time. Now we're going to hear individually from Bill Hoyt and Debbie Hoyt. Here's Bill. Well, he was he was always uh, looking for the next thing, not the current thing, you know. So if, yeah, if he when the when the talk box came along, he used it, and then that that was kind of okay. I got my dollars worth of value out of it. Now I got to figure out how to. Had to come in first next time, you know. My he goodness. was, uh, he, you know, he, he it, it's funny too. I, I learned a valuable lesson from him one time, and it was on the very first session that he hired me on. He, he was, a, he, he liked to play poker, and so Sunday nights he'd have people out of his house to play poker, and it was just like penny ante poker. And he was a great poker player, and I realized uh, after see, witnessing what I'm going to tell you is that. His session playing, his logic that he used on sessions was a lot like a poker player, it, that you don't reveal what you have or don't have, uh, and it'll it'll help your game. And then the, the story is, he had hired me on this Pepsi jingle, and so all these big shots from New York were going to come down and watch the jingle. And I knew about the session about maybe three weeks ahead of time. He, he said he was going to book me on it. And I had, quote, unquote, never worked for him yet, just hung around for that year or so. Mm-hmm. And so Pete was a night owl. He wouldn't even show up to work unless unless he had had an earlier session that day to where he would get back to the office during the daytime. He wouldn't even get to work till 6 or 7 at night. And then he'd stay there till 4 or 5 in the morning. And he'd, he'd just work all night long. And so if you were a gopher hanging out, you were expected to hang out until he decided to he wanted to head back home because uh, you would uh, you would be considered less than uh, loyal, <laughs> less than loyal. Like yeah, that's a good way to put it. If you didn't hang out, and so uh, he would he would remind me every couple of days how that this was important. And I shouldn't look like I was a newbie because it could cost him the account and stuff. So I was nervous by the time the session came, and it was going to be a ten o'clock in the morning session. So the night before the session, about 11 o'clock, I was saying goodnight. And he says, what are you leaving so early for? I said, because the session tomorrow, Peter, 10 o'clock. i got to get my dress. And so he was making fun of me for thinking that I needed to do that. And he, mm-hmm. uh, so he, he scolded me, and I was on my way because I wasn't going to put up with it that night because I wanted to be on my game in the morning. <clears throat> so it come 10 o'clock in the morning, he stayed up all night, and he didn't make it to the session. His wife, Rose, called in and said he's not feeling good. He'll come in at 2 o'clock and overdub. And so I thought, well, I'm going to hang around and watch him overdub. 
Well, as it turned out that morning, they handed out. I, I've done sessions for 40 years, and it's one of two times in my life that I was ever handed sheet music that had written notes on it. Oh, wow. Because they came down from New York. They had no idea that Nashville guys use the number system or whatever. So yeah. I thought, well, I'm... And, and they had a steel guitar solo written out in staff music, and I thought, Pete can't even read the phone book, much less his music. What's he going to say, you know? on the 60-second <laughs> jingle where they got the solo. And so he he came in and said hello to everybody at 2 o'clock and went out and tuned up his guitar. And he had this habit that if he didn't like what he was fixing to do, he would rake his thumb pick across the strings and signal the engineer to stop and go back to the beginning. And uh, so he listened to the jingle and they said, and you see, and, he, and he's looking at the sheet music and uh, he, uh, he, they said, Pete, you now there's your solo, Pete, right there, in this little 20-second solo in the middle. So uh, he says, okay. And I'm thinking, well, you need to be telling these people you can't read music, Pete. And he's not saying anything about it. And uh, so he gets out there and tunes up his guitar, and he tells the engineer, he says, go ahead and put it in record. Maybe I'll get lucky. And I'm thinking, man, what is going on in here? And so he gets about five seconds into the song, and he rakes his thumb pick across the strings. And I think, well, he's finally got to confess up and say he can't read this music. So the guy from New York says, what's wrong, Pete? And he said, well, he said, you know, I was just thinking, this idea came to my mind, and if you let me show it to you, if you don't like it, we'll go right back to what you got here on the paper, but you at least ought at least hear what I got in mind. And he said, sure, sure, studio people, that is. So he got down to the solo. Well, it's just simple three or four chord song, and he, he knew that much at least, you know. So mm -hmm. he just ad-libbed ad the solo, and it was very Pete Drake, which was not particularly difficult, just very stylistic, you know. And, yeah. uh, and I was standing in the control room observing all this, and the guys, immediately, as he, when he started playing the solo, they said, that's why we come here. The man's a genius. Listen to that. <laughs> it, was just, it was just standard stuff that he did. And so he got it on his first take. And uh, he, they, they hit the talk back, and they were saying, oh, Pete, that's terrific, man. We love you. That's it, man. Don't change a thing. Come on in. And so he was out there all of five <laughs> minutes, and he got it then. He was the hero of the day as opposed to being the villain who said, I can't read sheet music. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so he, he made his client feel comfortable. They went home happy as clams, and he got a session done in five minutes. He signed the time card and glanced over at me like the same thing because he knew that I knew. <laughs> he couldn't have played that. If he started working on it then and he was still alive now, he wouldn't have been able to play it. That, that was just not his forte, you know. Oh yeah, uh, that's that's good tact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my, and my my wife's in the car. She says, "Well, you know, he he might have been able to play it. He just couldn't read it." <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
and lots of times whoever he was in the middle of producing might be out there, like uh, a DJ Thomas or someone might be staying at the house, and he might be out there. And they would either shoot pool or play poker or hang out or maybe in good weather play softball a little bit or whatever. But, uh, yeah, he, and, and, and when you would quote-unquote hang out down there, mm-hmm. uh, it, it was well known because Pete, I mean, Pete was the only place that stayed open at night. I mean, yeah, 24 hours, Row, right? Yeah, Music Row is a very 9 to 5 kind of a business. I mean, it's just kind of like a department store or something. It just it has this opening time and closing time, and people would be gone by 5.30 or 6 in the evening. And so Pete was very much ahead of his time because, you know, he died 30 years ago, so all this that I'm talking about happened 35 or plus years ago. And he would, he would come and he says, you know, they could just set up a TV camera in here and they'd have a TV show. Well, that was before reality TV ever came into passing. Yeah. But, but because of people knowing that he was a night owl, there were times when uh, Leon Russell or Willie Nelson or Tanya Tucker or George Jones or Vern Gosman, those people would just stop by and hang out for a couple hours. And you never knew because it was all unannounced. They would just be coming into town or running around in the row and they see Pete's car out in front. So they'd stop and knock on the front door. Pete would let it in. Wow. Yeah, now, and my yeah, wife brings like... up an interesting point. He, he knew that my wife and I were major, major Leon Russell fans. And we had not met him at this point. And one night we stopped by there after a gig, which would have meant we were probably there this was like 2.30 in the morning, maybe, on a Friday, or I guess Saturday morning, because it was a Friday night gig. And so we saw Pete's car there, so we stopped in, and he let us in, and said, come on in the control room, there's somebody I want you to meet. So we walk in there, and he says, uh, Leon, I want you to meet some people, and it was Leon Russell. Well, we, that was good enough, and so we're getting to visit with Leon and Pete, and uh, Pete kept kind of twisting Leon's arm. He says, you are fans of yours. This year, love you. You play some piano. And he, nah, nah, nah. So anyway, yes, Pete was egging Leon on to play piano. And so he finally consented and heading out into the studio part to play the piano. And Pete always had a two-track, a quarter-inch flat of tape mm-hmm. loaded up on this two-track. And so it was a brand-new reel of tape. So it was like a, 30 minutes worth of tape. He always kept that thing loaded up, ready to go. And so as Leon is walking out in the studio, I saw that Pete pushed up the faders on the piano and hit record with that uh, tape machine. So he was recording all, all what happened. And Leon sat down at the piano, and whatever you ask him to play, whether it was Tightrope or Masquerade or Stranger in a Strange Land or whatever, he'd do about 60 seconds of it, you know? He was just mm-hmm. in the mood. And so that was wild enough, and we were pretty well freaked out about that. But uh, also, uh, he started telling us the story, because I commented on how I really liked his style of rocking the bass back and forth on the octaves. And mm-hmm. he told the story how he had, was a teenager. He had gotten passed over for a job in playing in a like a, a, a society the, the guy in Oklahoma that did all the weddings and all that, you know, like a 
good paying job for a teenager. And the guy said, called him in and said, well, I'm not going to be able to hire you. Your timing's not as good as I wish. But he said, I wanted to let you know I enjoyed your plan and you need to keep pursuing this. So I guess uh, Leon was really crushed that someone was critiquing his timing and thought to himself, well, who has good timing? i got to learn timing from something. And he realized, he said, well, you know who's got to have good timing is Chet Atkins because he plays that alternating bass when he plays the melody. And uh, Chet, now Chet goes like 1585 is, is the bass pattern he plays. But Leon just goes 1818. He doesn't ever put the five in there. And, uh, and he says, and I, so I started trying to do like Chet. He says, but I never could get coordinated enough to put the five in there, so I just rocked the octaves. Well, that unbeknownst to the, the guy who critiqued him, but he literally helped Leon get his style of piano playing, you know, by, yeah. uh, wow. by, him, by him actually not passing an audition. You know? <laughs> wow. So there, yeah. there was always something like that going on at Pete's, and that, that's, that's what made it so uh, intriguing to hang out down there because you never knew who was going to come by. And uh, it was all unplanned, unannounced, and Pete is correct in thinking that if they had had a TV camera in there, uh, it would have been the first reality TV show. Yeah, wow. Seemed like everybody who walked into that building learned something. They did, they did. So now, if you've got Pete Drake albums, you probably have photographs of him playing a blonde showbed with the name Pete Drake on the front. Yeah, you know, matter of fact, I have a picture of myself and my wife standing in front of that guitar uh, over at Ernest Tubbs Records. I don't know well, if it's I'll still over you. there, but I, I don't think it is, uh, or or if it is, it's a quote-unquote reproduction because that, oh, a that particular, yeah, because that particular guitar that Pete used. Uh, it's famous for two reasons. It's the, it's the number two show but ever built. But it originally wasn't Pete Drake's guitar. It was Buddy Emmons' guitar. And if you ever see a photograph of Buddy playing a blonde show, but where it says Buddy on the front, Buddy Emmons, mm-hmm. that's the same guitar. That's the same guitar. And Pete won it in a card game from Buddy. And so that's why oh, wow. Buddy's, was, Buddy's name was engraved in the wood. And Pete's was a leather plaque that they nailed on the front of it so uh, to cover oh, okay. it and just covered it right up yeah and and pete used that guitar until about well i, I don't know and he would he would have he would definitely have played it during the talk box era so the early 60s up to about probably 68 because he has one call that he called goldie and that was a showbed crossover which they only made for a few years because uh, they were so problematic but that's that's what he played for the rest of his career because he, he loved that crossover and you learn how to play a problematic instrument you got an advantage <laughs> well what was what was weird about it is you know, on, on a traditional steel guitar usually the first three pedals operate on the e9 neck which is the more common neck and then the six or seven more, depending on how tricked out the steel is, all work on a C6 neck. On a, on a uh, crossover, they have only six pedals, 
but they have a lever that you put it one way if you're playing the E9 neck and you play it, you move the lever to the other side when you're playing the C6, and all the pedals work on both necks. And you work that with your knees, right? Well, no, this this or is actually a, a lever. A, a, just a lever, you have to shift it like the gear of a car. Now, there, oh, are, okay. knee levers on, uh, there are knee levers underneath all steels, whether it be Pete's older ones or any modern new ones. But this was like a gear shift lever on the body of the steel. Uh, wow. That, uh, that you had to manually move over. It kind of kind of looked like a small, like like when you switch trains on a track, you know, and, you, uh-huh. and, you got a, and you're in the switching yard. It's kind of a, a lever about four inches long that sits on the back of the steel, and you have to manually flip it over to where all the pedals now are engaged into the other neck <clears> as opposed to the, the neck it was on. It, it, it was kind of a mini moving parts and subject to screw up, you know. Sure. Yeah. Boy, I wouldn't. I would not want to sit in front of someone else's one of those because I'd be afraid to break yeah. it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, that task got put off to me. I kind of was a steel guitar hobbyist, and when Pete found that out, he immediately assigned me to be the one to keep the strings fresh on the guitar and keep it tweaked up and stuff, and I agree. I, mean, I love the sound of that guitar, but I grew to hate it for, for how problematic it was and keeping it, uh-huh. it uh, at least in session-worthy condition. And I, I, was, I was glad that when that day was it was over, I wouldn't be blamed for something that was going wrong on a George Jones session that I wasn't there to help fix or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> So that was Bill Hollett, and now we're going to hear from his wife, Debbie Hollett, who uh, had a pretty different experience working with Pete Drake. I'll, I'll start off by saying that, actually, my relationship is probably a bit unique uh, with the okay. Drake from what you've been experiencing. I mean, I was a signed writer. I was signed ma- under management with them, but that all came about a few years after our relationship, actually, um, I was with the Drakes probably for about nine years. Uh, and during those nine years, I actually personally worked for Pete and Rose at their home. Um, so I, I, I was very involved with um, Pete personally, um, as well as you know, being a musician and singer and everything. And, and during that time frame, they actually had me um, involved with um, doing shows and, and backing up Freddie Weller and Mubba Montgomery and Jan Howard and, and um, the different things where I backed them up and, and opened for them. 
And then, you know, I think Bill had mentioned a couple of times we worked locally and Pete actually came out and played two shows with us in just some local bars. But when I say local, it was still on the outskirts of Nashville because he actually restricted me from working in town because um, he had this firm belief that uh, anyone that actually worked in town and people was aware of would have a difficult time getting a deal because they would get the uh, known as a has-been, basically. And I, I, I was able to witness so much by just having to be around um, to help take care of Pete because that was another uh, part of my job. He, you know, he had emphysema. Right. And, yeah, in the 80s. And, yes. And um, so when I went to work for them at the house, Part of my job was um, was to wake him up and get him ready to go into work. But you have to understand, when Pete went to work, if he didn't have a session like a 10 a.m., which was really rare that he would even book a 10 a.m. session, Pete would not get up till maybe 4, 5, or 6 o'clock at night. And so um, my job was, and Rose would be at the office working all day. So my job was to be at the house, and I would take care of the house. I would clean the house and the pool and take care of all the chores around the house and then make sure that Pete was up. And when he got up, I would have to um, do this um, respiratory therapy where you cup your hands and you pound on their lungs to, um, to, so, that, so that he could breathe through the, you know, uh, the mucus to release the mucus and stuff so um that that process would have to be done before he could get out and he had an easier time breathing at night so that's why he kept those really late hours you know i was um i was privy to a lot of the things that was going on um as they were being done and put together pete uh, you know i mean as a skilled guitar player uh he, he knew that he didn't have the technique that some of these other steel players had, but he did have um, the ability to rip a person's heart out by how he would uh, take a song to a certain place, the way that he would just swell those notes and things. You know, I mean, he knew oh, what yeah. he was doing. Yeah, he knew what he was doing with that steel guitar, and, um, and, and he, he, he thrived on that. So... Um, he he knew that what he was doing, and then and then he would put these deals together. Like when he put the deal together for the Grand Ole Opry, and you know Ernest Tubb and all those um, artists. I think it was about a ten album uh, thing that he had put together, and uh, it was a awesome project. But I remember him and Rose worked on that, um, and they were a great team. Him and his wife. She. Um, I mean, he, you know, you got to figure, he, he was just a studio steel player, but yet he had a home in Brentwood, uh, and he had the studio downtown, and, and uh, he, he, his career, the publishing, they financed all that, you know. Debbie also told me a story that sort of painted a picture of what a mogul Pete Drake was. Sort of a baller move, he would throw pool parties and invite local songwriters so he could scout for the latest hits. I was out there and helped with those pool parties. They would um, they would contact publishing companies 
um, when Pete was producing DJ Thomas, he um, mm-hmm. he had this brilliant idea to, uh, you know, I mean, I, w- I would listen to tapes and stuff, uh, and I actually found some songs. I found a song that he recorded on Ronnie Robbins, but um, I it was really interesting how he put this pool party together. Uh, he contacted... Um, publishing companies and said, okay, I'm looking for songs for B.J. Thomas. And, I mean, I helped Rose. We set all the parties up and everything, food, and um, and they had a great home, a beautiful home in Brentwood. And so the writers, the publishing companies would send these writers out there with their guitars, and they would just sit there, out there by the pool and strum and play. And that's where Pete found uh, B.J.'s first country hit, which was a new life for B.J., was um, the two-story house. Um, uh, that's how he found the song for B.J., and um, that just breathed new life into B.J.'s career. In fact, I think that that was really what ignited B.J.'s country, um, uh, you know, right. into the real country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sort of took a turn there, right? Yeah. Yeah, and um, that song was found out there uh, at that pool party. Um, the writers were out there and played um, Two Story House, and Pete, Pete knew it was a hit. He, he, he knew it was, you know. Um, so it, it, was, uh, it was pretty pretty cool to witness that sort of stuff, you know. But I, 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 we actually played some, some demos together. And uh, uh, I remember one time Pete walked in and Marianne was on drums and I was on bass, Bill was on guitar. And I can't remember if anyone was on piano, but we were in there trying to cut some demo and Pete ran us out. He ran us all out because he had come down there to work and he's like, okay, you all are done. So get your tails out of here. So <laughs> it was- it was funny. He says, "Yeah, I'll just get on out of there. I got to get to work." So, yeah. But uh, but we we had fun, and uh, there was a a lot of everyone around there was great people. It it was a an incredible environment to um, um, as they say, pay your dues. I guess you know. It was a Absolutely. we call it we call it we call it we called it the school of Drake. You know. That's what the I Drake keep hearing school. people say, yeah. Yeah, the Drake School Drake of Music. Drake School of Music. Yeah. Yep. We even yep. said it together. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. And it, it was. It yeah. was. And it was awesome, you know, watching Ernest Tubb and, and the Wilburn Brothers come in there and, and, um, and work and, and watch those recordings go down because you knew that that, that was the end of something. It wasn't the beginning I of know. something. It was really the end of something. You know, um, it was it was awesome. I if I were in your shoes, I don't know how long it would take me to get over being starstruck. I mean, did how long was that a factor for you? Before you know, <laughs> I I before I came, I I worked with with artists in California, so 
I never was um, awestruck, but I knew that I was in a special place. I knew I was in a special position. Yeah, yeah, we we were doing pretty good out there, but uh, the you know Bill always had this desire, and I think he knew what he was destined to do, and that was session work. And so he said, you know, I think we need to move to Nashville, and I was like, you know, I think you're right. And so we did. And so we came out here and just started over and um, hit the road with some different acts, you know. And um, then we saw Pete downtown, and um, a friend of ours, a, a mutual friend, said, you know, look Pete up when you guys go out there. So Bill went up to stage and told Pete, he says, hey, you know, Larry Black told me to tell you hi. And he says, oh, well, come by and see me sometime down the studio. And it was late at night, he said, you know. And so um, we did, and, and it, was, it went from there. We, he offered me a job at one point. I, I think we knew each other about three months, and he and his wife needed help out at the house. And so that's when they hired me to um, answer the phones at the house during the day and, uh, and clean the house. And so because she didn't have time, and so basically – um, I was cleaning the house and, and helping get him awake and out of the house, down to the, the studio. And so it uh, was, but Bill's like, well, that was a full-time job, job in itself. And yes, it was, you know, because I had to have his food ready. And then if Rose didn't get his clothes out, I had to get his clothes out for him. And then uh, I had to dry his hair after he got out of the shower and got dressed. I had to dry his hair. So it, it was a very unique Did he have long hair? Oh, no, no, no. It's just he didn't want to dry it himself. Oh, you know? okay. So basically I styled it, you know. And if Rose was home, she'd style it. So, I mean, Pete never did it. Well, I, I can't say he never did his own hair. I think maybe out of the nine years I knew him, he might have done his own hair once, maybe. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, um, I, mean, I mostly just seen him with a real clean part, you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Trust me, I, I know real, that part. I know how. Uh huh. I, I know. I, I know how to. Do, I know how to do that part. Yeah, it was funny, but yeah. You yeah, ever part it the other way on April Fool's Day or anything? Oh no, oh no. no. You, you didn't want to get on the bad side. <laughs> <laughs> because tell me, about, wait, tell me, that. tell me about his. Tell me, tell well, me about him yeah. getting cranky. Tell me, tell oh. me a cranky Pete story. Because that really happened to you. Pete, Pete. <laughs> And anybody can tell you, Pete would not get cranky verbally. Pete had a look that he could give you. He was <laughs> kind of passive. You know, oh, no, he just this real dark stare that, you know, is like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. Yep, I'm in trouble. And, you know, <laughs> and he would just be silent. You know, and Pete, Pete really wasn't. Well, no, he, he, he could be a real good talker, but when Pete got silent, that's when you needed to listen, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when Pete got silent, you needed to listen. So, uh, yeah. But, no, he, yeah. I, you know, when I first started working out there, I, I, Rose told me, she says, I don't know what you're doing, but he's coming to work in a good mood to just keep doing it. And I'm like, well, I'm trying to care the right way, so I'm okay, you know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, it's uh, the the household. I think the fact that that 
the household was being taken care of, it, it took care of them. And that's what I was doing. I was taking care of them, which enabled them, you know, it's like any relationship. If there's, if there's, if the house is kind of dirty or, you know, I mean, if the wife ain't happy, nobody's happy type thing, you know. Like when I think of Pete steel guitar playing, um, and I, you know, I music is like like acting. You know, you you want to take somebody somewhere. Like George Jones took you somewhere when he sang to you. Uh, Patsy Cline oh, yeah. just took you somewhere. And, and there's not mm-hmm. too many singers today that I I get that from. And and Pete with his steel, he took you somewhere. You know. So um, that's that's how I see music needing to be, and not everybody gets that, you know. That um, music is is another part of the theatrical world, you know. And um, you, you steel guitar, like country music, is a thing that can always like. If I'm in the right state of mind, it can make me just start crying. Like, even yeah. if I, like, don't even feel like it. And you know what? It's usually the steel guitar when that kicks in. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Debbie, and to, Thank to you. hear your story. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, and you know, it uh, actually was really nice remembering too, because it it was a good chunk out of my uh, um, life in, in Nashville. Actually, you know, the beginning part of us being in Nashville, and uh, I really did learn a lot from from Pete and Rose, and um, it is pretty cool, pretty cool to be able to remember and talk about it. About four months into the production of this episode, I got an interview with Johnny Drake, Pete's son, who was the only person I spoke with that was around when the talking guitar actuator came into play, and also the only person I spoke with that grew up in the Drake household. Here's some of my conversation with Johnny. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Johnny Drake? Yeah, look, Johnny. Hey, sorry I'm a little bit late on calling you. Oh, that's all right. 
Johnny told me he built a lot of talk boxes. Yeah, we used to we used to build them, but he'd sell them through the back, guitar back seats. So there's Man. there's literally thousands of them out there. Wow. Do you, do you remember when you were a kid and you uh, encountered it for the first time? Like, what was your reaction? Well, we all thought it was cool. You uh, get to mess around with it? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, everybody used to hang out in the studio back in the early 70s. Uh, Bill lived there, more or less. Him and Steve Henson, both, and Debbie. Well, like I told Pete when he got here, you better get you a gimmick or go back to Georgia. Just because a bunch of players at that time. Mm-hmm. Man, so uh, what was the what was the general reaction like when that started showing up? It was a new sound for most people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, Jerry had signed a contract with uh, Smash Records, what he did forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, he couldn't use that talker on any other record labels for a long time. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So Smash he Records had, had exclusive rights? Yeah, for that that specific sound. It's wow. like uh, different artists, he used different amps, so he'd have different sounds for them. He had Chopin yeah. amps and SSGs and Standales. How was it growing up in the Drake household? Oh, it was cool. I was on. I got to go on the road with Pete a lot during the weekends and stuff, and I worked in the studio for the Sam, I was big enough to suck records because he had uh, stop records for years. Yeah, you know, I, m- my favorite uh, 45 I have from stop records is uh, Midnight Cowboy. Mm-hmm. You remember that tune? I think I do. Well, he don't ride a horse or he don't wear a hat or cowboy boots. He don't need a badge and he don't need a gun for the line he shoots. He's not known the whole world around. He's the most wanted man by the ladies of our town. He's a midnight cowboy, midnight cowboy, midnight cowboy. Again. We used to have a, a joke called Pete Drakeeler. Because he'd come in at dark and leave when the sun would come up. So for years, Randy Bass and me, one of us had to be there. So we was working 12-hour shifts so that somebody was there 24-7. Yeah, I, you know, I've had periods in my life where working through the late hours was best for me. Um, I've got little kids now, so um, that's yeah. out of the question. I mean, if they stay up late, you know, then I'm pulling my hair out. <laughs> well, Pete always said the air was cleaner at night because the dew would fall and it'd take all the stuff out because of his breathing was so bad. 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's not as many people driving around or walking right. around, smoking or all that. And he was he was a heavy smoker. Oh yeah. Well, back in the day, you'd have ten musicians in a control room, and everybody'd be smoking. <laughs> yeah, you just ask, ask your doctor which is the best cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> What's going to kill me the slowest? <laughs> Oh, man. Well, yeah, so that had a lot to do with why he was such a night owl then. Oh, yeah, he, yeah. And he, he loved the night because all the, all the after all the clubs and everything would close, we, you never knew who was going to be there in the studio. They don't, everybody drop in. Yeah, it was just a constant flow of who's who of Nashville and who's that yeah. of Nashville. Willie, Waylon, uh, Leon Russell, and all of them used to come back out because I knew people were going to be there. Yeah, what's going on? I don't know. It's the middle of the night. Let's go to Pete's place. Yeah, and there were yeah. so many other studios in Nashville, the smaller studios, when they'd run out of tape. In the middle of the night, they'd either call us, we'd get them a roll of tape, <laughs> they'd get it back to us there. So. You, you've been in the music business for... Under your life, right? Yeah, yeah. Me and, my oldest, kinda... me and my oldest sister, when I was like in the seventh grade, uh, or before then, when we got out of school, we'd get on the city bus and go over to the studio, to the office, and uh, work at the office and stuff like that. And then whoever got tired went home towards East Nashville first, gave us a ride home. We did that for years and years. I've been on the road most of my life. I used to live in departments across the street from this old star studio. Worst mistake I ever made. <laughs> Middle of the night, I'd get knocked. They'd be knocking on my door, come fix this. And the last project Pete did was a steel guitar album with all the top steel players in Nashville playing. All together, which was a total nightmare for tuning. Yeah, like a steel guitar orchestra? Yeah. You'd have about a dozen going at once. Wow. I don't know the words. Wow. Yeah, I know they do jams uh, with steel guitars. I don't I don't play one. I have a friend who does. But I, I, I've heard about the, the nightmare of tuning. <laughs> oh, yeah, because they all tune differently. I, I think it's really um, interesting that it went from starting in Nashville and then um, sort of went into the more of, um, you know, arena rock realm. And then from there, it kind of got adopted for a really long time by funk music. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was like, well, I mean, Zapp and Roger um, kind of, Introduce it to a different audience. There was a guy on uh, Lawrence Welk that played, and I can't, can't think of his name, but he used to talk her too. He used that. You're, you're, you're thinking of Alvino Ray. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that was classy. Yeah, yeah. There's a black and, dude. I, I seen him on Facebook a while back. He plays keyboards, and he's yeah, going yeah. for a talk box. 
He's really yeah, good. You thinking of Roger Trout then? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he was really talented. Yeah, he was. He could, uh, he's, he's real good at enunciating. You know what? Ooh. I heard that. I, I wondered, actually. I'm glad I thought of this. We, um, so... I know that Roger Troutman in the studio, um, since it was kind of hard to pick up the consonant to the speaker, um, he would overdub just consonant on top of the the talk box tracks. Oh. So all the S's and T's and K's and everything, he just well, like... Well, Pete, would, Pete would always uh, use an extra amp and come out of the extra, extra speaker. Mm-hmm. speaker into the talk box and drive it and pick it up with a mic and run the mic back into the amp. So you control the, the volume. Oh, that's good. Just made a loop. Yeah. I, 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 tr- I made an attempt at building one out of a, you know, about $60 worth of stuff. I could... Well, that's about what's in yeah. a, a big yeah. uh, speaker driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got, got one of those little uh, pig nose amps, you know? Yeah. And uh, ripped the speaker, out, like took it out of the casing, stuck mm-hmm. it in the plunger, stuck a hose in the plunger, taped it up yeah. real good, threw it in a shoebox, stuffed it with some dirty shirts, Pulled the hose out of it and then put a mic in front of my mouth with the hose there. Oh, cool! Did it work? Yeah, yeah, it worked all yeah, right. It, I mean, it wasn't loud enough to do it live, so right. um, but it, I, you know, it worked out for going direct. Or I guess if I had like plugged the mic into an amp, say, mm-hmm. yeah, you know? yeah. How do you think Pete would want to be remembered? Or what would he want to be remembered for? As a direct school of music. It's what we used to call it, Pete's Place. So we'd take in everybody, he'd teach them the business. And love to work with new talent. Rodis Franklin Pete Drake passed away in 1988. I reached out to his widow Rose and she responded via email. Here is Ashley Erickson reading that for you. Pete hired me in 1965 to run his publishing companies, Window Music and To Make Music. That was owned by Pete, Jack Drake, Tommy Hill, Jerry Shook, and Ralph Davis. That's the office where the talking music actuator was invented. 
Dottie West had just moved to Nashville, and her husband Bill West was a steel player. They were writers for window music, and Pete was trying to throw Bill the sessions he couldn't work. So Bill was just hanging out. Luther Perkins was also hanging around the office when he was not on the road with Johnny Cash. It was a hangout kind of place. There weren't many offices open in those days on Music Row, and Pete had opened his office as a place to go between sessions, and for creative people to hang out. I was a student at Vanderbilt Nursing School at the time, and would come over to their office after school to help with paperwork and mail. My dream in life was to be around songwriters. One day, I heard all these conversations about a voice box, and Pete's idea of using instruments to help dumb people that couldn't talk to actually speak words. In a couple of days, Bill and Luther decided, with Bill's electronics background, they could build a voice box. Luther and Bill built the original talking music actuator. It took several different versions to get it right. Pete's original idea was to build a medical device, not to make records. That's the way it started, but everything changed when Jerry Kennedy heard his new sound. Pete had just started working three or four sessions a day, and working a lot of those with Shelby Singleton, who was head of Mercury slash Smash Records. Jerry Kennedy was head of Smash in Nashville and had used Pete's TGA on the Roger Miller's hit Lock, Stock, and Teardrops record. Jerry was fascinated with the unusual sound and asked Pete and his talking guitar to sign with Smash. The very first single was Forever, a song written by Buddy Killen and already recorded and released by the Little Dippers. It was simple, and Pete could form the words easily. It was the perfect song for the TGA. In those days, all A&R people looked for something different, unlike today's music. Now all the artists sound the same. I will write more later on our home and family. Thanks again, Rose Drake. Well, there you have it, folks. That's the first episode of Low Profile with Markley Morrison. I've been waiting about 15 years or so in vain for somebody, anybody, to tell me more about the amazing and incredible Pete Drake and his talking steel guitar. And four months ago, I decided to take it upon myself to become an investigative journalist overnight and tell the story myself. I hope you enjoyed the program. I certainly enjoyed putting it together, although it was, predictably, a lot more work than I had anticipated. I'm still learning how to go about the process of doing this thing, so thanks for bearing with me. I want to thank everybody who had a part in making this story a reality. Namely, Johnny Drake, Bill Hollett, Debbie Hollett, and Steve Henson for their phone interviews, Rose Drake for her email correspondence, 
Ashley Erickson for reading that email to you. Andrew Dorsett for co-hosting the intro. Mark Marin for letting me use a clip from his program WTF and his interview with Joe Walsh. And Andrew Ebright for technical help. Almost all the music you heard on this episode was performed by Pete Drake. With the exceptions of Roger Troutman and his band Zap, Speedy West and Jimmy Bryant, BJ Thomas and the Calhoun Twins, all produced by Pete Drake, and Alvino Ray, Pete Drake's predecessor, on the talk box. If you like what you heard, please subscribe so you get future installments and leave me a review and rating as this is apparently an important element to the success of a podcast. Oh, and another thing. This episode was cold from about four hours of interview material, and I definitely left out more than I wanted to, but I had to stick to the main story. These Nashville veterans I talked to had a lot more anecdotes about country stars like George Jones, Vern Gosden, Ernest Tubb, Gary Stewart, and too many others to mention. I heard a lot about the contrast of modern Nashville and the music row of yesteryear. If you want to hear these interviews in their entirety, complete with my awkward moments and eccentricities, there's going to be a link to a Patreon account on the show's website, lowprofilepodcast.com. If you support that on a monthly basis for anything from $2 to $2 million a month, you'll get some goodies between episodes and these raw interviews will be the first batch. In the future, I'll be playing mixtapes I've made, outtakes, and surprises like that. Really appreciate your support, and I hope you uh, keep in touch as I work on this new project. The next episode is going to follow a slightly different format, as a couple of friends and I discuss another long-time obsession of mine, the German-born singer Klaus Nomi. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>